Hello. Good afternoon. Andrew, how are you? Doing well, Dr. Grant. How are you? Absolutely wonderful. Hey, thanks for uh, joining us and uh, welcome everybody uh, for a fabulous session. Uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun uh, talking about today's uh, topic. Let me uh, introduce myself. I'm uh, Kiran Garamella. I'm the Chief Scientist and CTO uh, for, for uh, Core Conics. And I get to do all the fun stuff. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when people are talking about all these different you know, ideas and you know, business models and so on, uh, you know, I get to do all the really cool stuff with all the new technologies and stuff. So, uh, Andrew? For sure, yeah. So my name is Andrew Bull. I'm the founding partner of Bull Blockchain Law. It's a law firm based in the United States, and we represent clients across the blockchain, cryptocurrency, and obviously securities and tokenization context. So uh, I started on the tech side originally in the crypto industry, running a crypto mining company and an investment fund, but then transitioned to the legal side years ago and uh, have been fortunate enough to see the different changes in regulatory approaches from not only the U.S. perspective, but also other jurisdictions in terms of how they're categorizing tokens and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, but uh, happy to be here. And thanks for CoreConnex for hosting, as always. And, uh, yeah, I'm happy to weigh in on any aspect of it. Oh, yeah. And and so you started uh, this journey on the tech side. And hopefully you get you um, were able to save a lot of the uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, private addresses, hopefully, you know. Uh, I, I have a friend, uh, you know, who did a lot of good stuff from the early ages, early stages of uh, Bitcoin back in 2010, 2011. And he tells me that every time they, um, you know, solve the puzzle, you know, he would get like 50 Bitcoins, believe it or not, 50 Bitcoins, right? And uh, he had seven kids and put the, all of them through school. And um, and I said, you know, hey, when did you sell this stuff? He said, yeah, I sold it when it was like 30 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, have you not saved even a few? And he said, well, some of the addresses, I just don't even have them anymore. So it's really a sad story, right? Right, yeah, right. It's, it's amazing. So it's, it's sure. interesting because, um, you know, I come from a traditional finance background. Mm -hmm. So my background has been mostly in the uh, traditional finance. And I was a, a global CEO with the AGE, a uh, financial finance company within GE. And, you know, so I used to train myself uh, on the corporate side on many things. And I personally have been a uh, trader myself. You know, I used to uh, trade futures and, you know, commodities and options and you know, things like that over the years uh, for my own account, of course. You know, I was not a professional trader, um, but through that, you know, I kind of learned a lot. So uh, it'll be interesting to, you know, kind of compare notes with you um, on the evolution and where this is going and one of the things i've noticed andrew and maybe you can uh, you know give me your uh, color on this is you know when the crypto community came up um there you know there's a ideological bent to the crypto movement uh, in the sense that we don't want intermediaries we don't want you know the big brother watching us and finding out what's going on and now, of course, when the scam started happening and, you know, they lost their money, guess what they did? They just went back to Big Brother and Uncle Sam and said, help, mom, what happened, right? So I'm kind of curious about, you know, your take on how people are viewing this whole crypto phenomenon. You know, when I look at regular investors like us, you know, you know, you know, age range, you know, people with the real money and, you know, some experience, behind, you know, under the belt, you know, we tend to, I think we tend to care more about the safety and security of our investments and not so much about, you know, who gets to know about it, right? I mean, what's your take on that? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point and great question. And really the, especially the cyberpunk movement of the eighties and nineties that really spawned kind of that mentality too, of being like, Oh, I'm so standoffish to any type of regulatory oversight yeah. or anything along those lines. I think that in the early days, for sure, when I was doing the mining and, and running the investment fund, that was at the core of everyone's mentality and everyone's kind of coming to the table and saying, Hey, this is a major motivation for why we want to participate. Well, one of the limitations back then is the amount of applications that blockchain and crypto actually had produced by that point. And obviously Bitcoin kind of being one of the only iterations of it. And so now fast forward to today, and we have so many different avenues in terms of the application of the technology that I think that that mentality has definitely been kind of marginalized or compartmentalized away to certain applications. And within that, and when we think about kind of the larger topic today as well, is in my opinion, we I've seen regulatory adoption over time. Now, in certain circumstances, there hasn't been enough. And in certain circumstances, there have been too much. And I, I think that within that context, when seeing the development in terms of kind of what's going to happen in the future, we're definitely seeing more and more from an educational standpoint, because I think that's what it comes back to is that once somebody solves their educational hurdle to understand how the technology works and understands its potential use case and applications, they start to realize that there's all of these different iterations well beyond kind of this traditional privacy ability to transfer funds. And so within that, especially in the United States, we have a lot of regulators that are, have become much more educated and weighed in in terms mm -hmm. of how the regulations should be addressing the industry. And so going back to kind of like your last point as well, when you have the more traditional investor context or industry that is trying to evaluate whether there are investment opportunities or what type of technology iteration or application blockchain could bring to the table for them in comparison to their traditional industry, there's definitely an increasing level of comfortability that we've seen for sure. Because we represent a lot of hedge funds in, in the industry. Mm -hmm. and they've done, they do traditional assets, but they also do crypto assets, but then they also do assets in terms of investing in companies that are utilizing the technology and so on and so forth. And so within that, we kind of have a layer of, oh, this is approved and has to really follow certain standards depending on the jurisdiction that you're in. And as a result, that is really what creates kind of more legitimate entities in the space for lack of a better term. And so we're seeing that develop more and more. And I, and I really see kind of the next phase, especially in the security token context. I was actually just having a conversation about this the other day when thinking about the private equity industry and how much it's already been disrupted by blockchain and the digitization and tokenization of assets. I think of we are very much on the cusp of seeing a expansion of that type of implementation of the technology into public markets. And I think we're going to see that over time in traditional markets like the New York Stock Exchange mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And, and that's really going to be giving that bridge of comfortability to a traditional investor, but also utilizing the technology simultaneously. Yeah, you, you actually wrote a uh, very interesting article way back a few years ago in Forbes, I think, where I think one of your main points was it's not so much as a either or, either it's a traditional finance or it's a crypto, but it's a synergy between them, bring the best of both, right? I mean, there's the, um, the, the traditional finance of, you know, being very solid, secure, verified, safe, recoverable, restorable uh, digital assets. So that's one as aspect of that. But the other part is that to be much more fluid and very innovative in how these assets are owned and traded, transferred and moved. Um, you know, across borders, right? I mean, so I, I found that actually very uh, eye-opening. I mean, I think it is that, you know, marriage, get the best of both worlds. Absolutely. Right way to look at it. 
For sure. Yeah. And, and I try to reiterate this point too, as much as I can, is that especially when people are coming from the traditional finance perspective, it's we're not changing the asset itself. We're just implementing a more efficient technology and we're making the process in of itself more efficient in that context, because you think of some of the inefficiencies around cost or say there's fragmented third party service providers and it's not all in one ecosystem. For example, just the transference of information in of itself is going to be stagnant in those contexts. And so I definitely see, especially in the security token iteration and our application, an example of, hey, we're really marriaging this traditional industry, traditional asset, making sure we're still regulatory compliant, seeking very age old applications in terms of the Securities Act of 1933 in the states and so on and so forth. And so I think that that's something that I always want to emphasize. And I think you emphasized it great as well is really trying to bring to the table this, hey, we're not changing the entire investment structure that exists in the traditional industry. Mm -hmm. It's just more making it efficient from that perspective. Yeah. You know, when we have conversations and I'm, and I'm sure, you know, you have too. You know, people ask, you know, someone like me, for example, you know, they look at me as a technologist and they ask this question and say, can you do this or can I do this or can we do it like this? And my answer is always going to be standard. It's going to be we technologists can do anything you want. That's never <laughs> been the problem. OK, <laughs> but the question is, is that the right thing to do? Right. Isn't it? So uh, so I would love to hear your thoughts about. You know, so suppose we have an entrepreneur who is now setting out to raise capital and, you know, they'll say, you know what, I, I can tap into an ecosystem of the crypto investors and could we make this thing happen? What do we need to watch out for? So, I mean, as a technologist, of course, they can do whatever they want. But of course, I always we always defer to the, the lawyers right? We'll say, you know, hey, just make sure you get clearance because they protect your best interest. So from that angle and from that perspective, um, what advice would you give to uh, entrepreneurs who say, you know, we want to expand, but we want to be regulatory compliant. We want to avoid any scams or, or even the illusion of a scam. Um, and what should we do when we want to, you know, tap into the crypto markets for our capital rates? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's such a good point about the technology component of it, because realistically, any of us could go mint a token in a day. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should or that <laughs> we're not going to break any rules doing it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think of that kind of as a, a nice jumping off point into this timeline that especially early entrepreneurs can evaluate from the perspective of what to do from a strategy standpoint for their business. Mm -hmm. And one specifically is thinking about the jurisdiction. And this is really where we have kind of an implementation of traditional legal regulation in terms of where your securities are going to be potentially offered, obviously, yeah. but also a technology that, again, you can do almost anything with in that context that truly is borderless. And we saw in the ICO boom in 2017, a lot of these companies went out and they used this borderless technology and as a result, potentially ran afoul of a lot of securities regulations and restrictions that are put in place from a consumer protection perspective. So when I'm advising somebody who's thinking about, hey, how do I actually integrate this technology to make my business more efficient in the capital raising context? I'm saying really narrow in what jurisdictions you're going to be targeting. 
because not only from an investor perspective, but whatever your business is or product perspective, those are going to have impacts on not only what type of, say, regulatory exemption you use, say you go down the private equity context in the United States, but also on top of that, what type of investors you're going to be able to access. And so when I think of some of the general regulatory exemptions that exist, say Reg D, for example, right, limited to investors under 506B or 506C, and that in of itself is an important consideration because you're thinking about who's going to be able to access the asset comparatively to, say, Reg CF, right, with crowdfunding, yeah. being able to open it up to these more retail investors. Now, this is where I want to just reiterate maybe the earlier point that I was saying is that these are all traditional exemptions that are being used for right. the Jobs Act, right? And mm -hmm. we have this expansion over time of the amount of companies that are utilizing them. And really, we're just layering in this now token component. So instead yeah. of somebody getting a, a representation of their share ownership in the company, they get a token that represents that share. Right, right. And I think that going back to kind of those two points, not only where you're going to be offering the ownership within your company from a jurisdictional standpoint, but also who you're going to be offering it to is yeah. really going to start to narrow in your options and thinking about the exemptions, but also kind of thinking about the larger context. We have a lot of clients that are international and they have different considerations because when they're thinking about if they're going to offer their asset in a lot of jurisdictions that aren't the United States, okay, well, there are definitely regulatory considerations, but maybe they're not as stringent because obviously the U.S. kind of stands at the top in terms of their consumer protection rules, especially mm -hmm. from a security standpoint. So within that and really navigating kind of the technology slash legal consideration of this overall equation, it's like we know that utilizing the technology, we can put it anywhere in anyone's pocket at any time. Yes. But narrowing that in with like what your regulatory risk is, is half the battle. And I think that's really what I would overemphasize to somebody who's considering going down this path is that you're going to see the very real world benefit of the ease of administration or the ease of transfer of assets or the ease of ownership mm -hmm. representation or the ease of secondary trading of an asset that has been traditionally held in the private equity context, which might not necessarily would have had such a substantially large amount of secondary market liquidity. But now, because all those benefits are an option, you really want to make sure that you're navigating this path and considering which exemption to go down and or which jurisdiction to really launch in. No, no, absolutely. You know, there are all these loaded terms like cryptocurrency, security tokens, securities, right? And people kind of get confused. And of course, there's uh, digital assets. And one of the interesting challenges that I've had, and, you know, no, you know, no, I'm not just an IT guy, but guy who has actually done some trading and, you know, stuff like this and been involved in the uh, financial market for over, you know, two and a half decades now. Uh, you know, one of the things I have to point out to people really is that you know, securities are not better instruments. And, you know, I think people don't really understand what that actually means. I mean, cash and currencies are better instruments, right? He who, he who possesses those owns it, but that's not necessarily true for securities, right? I mean, there was, uh, in the initial days, I think securities were treated as some better instruments, but the, the potential for fraud and money laundering is so much rampant with that approach that they have now made them illegal in, in just about every uh, civilized country, right? So I think I think that's what many people don't understand. But um, Andrew, I think the 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 narrative now, I believe, has to shift from these overloaded terms such as securities and coins and cryptocurrencies and more towards true digital assets. 
And, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, when I say digital assets, I'm not talking just electronic records. Obviously, that's digital, but that doesn't make it a digital asset, right? The digital asset has to come with the with some uh, foundation and the structure about, you know, uh, how it can be traded. What does it actually represent? Uh, what are the safeties and securities built into that? Is there recourse and recovery behind it and, and so on, right? So um, uh, how are you, what's your opinion on um, how the definition or the maturity of this entire phrase digital assets and its relevance to entrepreneurs and how is how do you think that's maturing yeah for sure and i think that it's maturing but it's not maturing at a super fast rate in the context mm -hmm. of there are definitely some misunderstandings around it to your point mm -hmm. and i mm -hmm. think that because especially when there's no outright regulatory clarity from regulators or legislators obviously yeah. then it's all left to the stakeholders of the industry e.g. you and I, to communicate this information to people in who are potentially utilizing it. And as a result of that, there's not any set term that's defined. And so security token really came about once the SEC categorized tokens as securities back in 2017, starting with the Dow report. But since then, obviously, we've seen this massive expansion in not only the use case of the types of digital securities that could exist, but also who's actually accessing them as the ability to actually invest. So I would agree 100% with this context of, we need to create this larger emphasis on digital assets because it's not necessarily akin to say, having a token like you would in the traditional cryptocurrency context. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's gonna be limitations in the way that you can say own that or transfer it or something along those lines. And those are very real world important considerations that need to go into any type of consideration for an entrepreneur, but also somebody who would potentially invest in it as well. And so for me, because we've seen kind of a, a transformation for especially over the last two years, like it's, it's been almost that recent where we see a, a massive shift or movement towards, hey, we need to start creating some type of standardization, not only from a compliance standpoint, but from a definitional standpoint so that people can be clear. And also just overemphasizing that point that when we think of, hey, if there's a digital representation of ownership of my equity in a company that carries a royalty right or a dividend payment right exactly. or something, something mm -hmm. like that, right? That's going to be very different from me having a fractionalized ownership of real estate. And, and so we have these very, very different iterations that can be all encompassing under the digital asset definition. And as a result, I think that I'm hoping, and this is what we're really working on, especially with legislators these, these days, it's been happening more and more, not only in DC, but at the state level as well, where we're really trying to make this push to, hey, we, we need to work together in order to create some more clarity in the industry, because there are people that have this misunderstanding of, oh, if I launch my security token tomorrow, I can go put it on Coinbase. It's like, no, there's a disconnect. You're not fully understanding what its purpose is, so on and so yeah. forth. And solving that educational hurdle, I think is half the battle. So I'm hoping yeah. it's faster. Oh, no, absolutely. And, you know, to complicate matters, there's all this innovation going on with NFTs and stable coins and stuff like that. And, and uh, you know, this it's very interesting, but uh, in, uh, you know, where I come from in Tampa, Florida, um, the very first real estate uh, NFT was launched here. So a house, well, you know, they created an NFT for a house and put it on the market for a sale. And it happened right here in Tampa, the very first time ever, right? Which is really, really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, there was actually supposed to be an open house. You can actually go and look at that uh, house and everything. We didn't have time to do that on that weekend, but 
it's really fascinating. Just a few months ago, that, you know, this happened. And we, we're seeing more and more of this happen, right? And, you know, it, it's, it's amazing that, um, you know, with the SEC taking on a certain stance around this and, you know, some people claim they haven't offered clear guidance and some people say how much more clearer that can, than you can get. It's pretty simple, <laughs> right? And and now there's NFTs and stable coins. And of course, the, the, the whole uh, fiasco with uh, Luna and the Terra, that uh, yeah. it's amazing. Um, how do you see this market boiling? I mean, it's a, there's a whole bunch of new things happening. I mean, I have my view on this one too, mm-hmm. um, of NFTs and, and stable coins and you know, what would actually make them sustainable and provide true value. Uh, in this in this financial ecosystem, uh, but kind of what, wanted to see, you know, from a regulatory and legal perspective, you know, uh, are you, what are you hearing on on these? For sure, yeah. So especially in the, we'll start with NFTs first because they're obviously such a hot button topic to discuss mm-hmm. these days. But the the nice thing about an asset that is technically non fungible is that you can't really tie the expectation that someone's going to make money off of it with the direct actions of the issuer. And as a result, you have these potential applications like in the representation of real estate context that might not necessarily would be the same if say they were to NFT the shares in their company, because that's not necessarily the same thing, right? We have a difference in terms of value and the distribution of value. Cause I always bring up this example of if you have one, if you have a pool of tokens and all of those tokens can increase in value and decrease in value at the same exact time, right? Mm-hmm. Or in a very, very fungible world. Right. And that is a large consideration from the SEC's perspective and general regulated regulatory perspective mm-hmm. as well. Other governmental agencies like FinCEN and FINRA and so on and so forth. So within that kind of difference we have in the non-fungible context, and I'll go back to actually a, a point you made about a representation of ownership in the digital asset context well an nft really can serve as that that's really all that it's doing on the blockchain in of itself is that it's this proof of record i bring up the deed to a house as a really good example to start to understand how some of the iterations of nfts can even work because it's more about that representation of ownership versus say like you actually owning a pixelated image that's stored on a central database so so yeah i i mean there's there's an advancement that's going on there, but also the larger con- context of NFTs in the industry is, mm-hmm. is a bit concerning from my perspective, honestly. It's, there's, there's been a massive expansion and explosion in the use cases, but mm-hmm. what comes with that, similar to what we saw in 2017, are a lot of projects that are trying to create some type of iteration with this technology that doesn't necessarily make sense or isn't necessarily going to drive true value. Because if we go back to the NFT sale in Tampa, right we have a very real world hard asset that we can point to that has value and we know how to create or evaluate that value right well that is that's right that is different in an irrational market where everybody has access to the asset and also when you think of the expansion of traditional cryptocurrency assets in of themselves over the last 10 15 years then that is creating this additional complexity around the irrationality of what the true value is um, so that that's my hesitation around saying, oh, NFTs are going to change the world. Like, I definitely think that they do and are and are going to even more in different iterations. But at the same time, I think similar to the ICO boom, where we saw a lot of projects trying to capitalize off of a, a use case, that there's going to be a lot of them that are going to fall by the wayside. It's, it's a little bit like, um, uh, uh, you know, this analogy just sprang to mind and I had to share it with you. 
um, it's like saying, you know, the automobile industry is going to change transportation. Well, of course it, it will and it does, but you still need speed limits. You need the laws, driver's licenses and responsible behavior and driving, right? I mean, it's the same concept. Exactly. It really is. And that's where I get into these conversations where if you go out and you create, say, a line of NFTs, but then you're fractionalizing all the individual NFTs and creating pools of tokens like fungible tokens, right. like you're just you're just trying to circumnavigate the already established regulation that we have in the digital asset context. And so that there's a, definitely a, an attempt by a lot of the some of the stakeholders in the industry to do that. And it, it's really a, puts an emphasis on making sure that the projects that say you're evaluating for investment or say you're working with are legitimate and aren't trying to go down that path and that they have a real kind of education of what the use cases are that are going to have value. Yeah, yeah. There was one incident that happened um, many, many years ago that really got me quite upset and some of that is playing out now so uh you remember blockbuster right i mean it's um of course. You know, <laughs> so yeah 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 so th these people uh, I, I mean it was great uh family night for us and my kids to go out and you know browse the shelves and look at you know we i like blockbuster for me it's it's a nice experience you know and netflix was just coming up in those days and you know it wasn't quite the same as going and touching and feeling and looking at the the titles on the shelves right it's very different uh feel to it but i i got a gift card for like a hundred dollars i gave it to my kids to spend and, and it's a blockbuster gift card and within a month after doing that blockbuster went belly up and and we said okay fine you know let's get our money back of the hundred dollar gift card and they said well we can't give your money back um and we said why not i mean it's it's a i mean this is for using but you can't use your going belly up so just give us the money back and they wouldn't and what i found out is that the the receiver for the bankruptcy proceedings uh this you know apparently apparently what happened is that blockbuster used those funds the uh, reward uh, point, uh, the, the, the you know, the, the gift card points for their operational expenses, mm. right? And so there's nothing now to refund. And apparently the uh, the judge also waived that requirement. And that really, really got me upset. And I was going, wait a minute, this is something that you should have put in escrow and you shouldn't have, it's a liability you should have put in escrow. You shouldn't have been using it for operational expenses. And then, you know, the whole thing vanishing, right? Right. Now, I kind of see some of that history playing back again when I look at stable coins today. I mean, there are all kinds of stable coins, right? I mean, alg algorithmic and so on. And that's what caused the Luna fiasco. Right. But, you know, what what is the stance, uh, you know, from your sort of legal standpoint when something is a stable coin? Wouldn't you expect that the stability of a stable coin is actually backed by escrowed real assets somewhere? Wouldn't you think so? Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I've been a, kind of outspoken about it since the the launch of USDT in the industry, for sure, in terms of making sure that there are audited financials that show actual mm -hmm. real world assets that back it, because that's the other thing. And this actually dovetails right back to your earlier comment about you can do anything with technology. I can launch a stable coin tomorrow. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. But does it have stability? And the the Terra situation is really bringing that to light on a massive scale, which obviously we don't aren't going to be happy that that happened. But at the same time, a positive outcome of that is this overall question, or at least more people getting on board with questioning where does the stability come from? And because the 
base technology of stable coins is ingenious in my opinion to be able to move assets in that context without having the potential volatility right of the traditional crypto markets right. amazing processing of payments i mean it's yeah. going it's changing the financial system as we see it in real time however right who's behind the stable coin is half mm. consideration as well because and and we've seen countries that have been piloting these different types of programs over the years and none of them have caught massive success or at least they've just been really hesitant to full-on launch them and mm -hmm. i think we're going to see that in the future for sure from the stable asset perspective but the interim is definitely going to have a lot of these private company iterations that exist in the industry and especially with an example like usdt where we have a very small cohort or contingent of group of individuals that are dictating a very very substantially large supply that impacts all of the secondary market components of cryptocurrency that that makes it much more centralized and i and not to say that we need to get to this full decentralized node or mode or function or anything along those lines but at the same time it does put a lot more control in the hands of a, a very very small amount of people and so when we work with say fincen financial crimes enforcement network or say any real governmental agency that is concerned about kind of the banking considerations yeah. and laws behind this that's always at the forefront we're like where is this coming from who's providing this and are they proving that they actually have some back to it because if they can't then you should be inherently suspect of that for sure yeah i mean i think i think the um I think the standards need to go up a notch or several notches, but, but you know, where they are right now, it's, um, I mean, a lot of this algorithmic, um, stability behind stable coins at the end of the day, it really, really comes down to exchange of various types of assets and kind of moving stuff around, you know, just to, you know, take advantage uh, yeah. of changes in exchange rates and so on. Right. I mean, it's almost like, uh, uh, uh this was actually anticipated by, um, uh, Ian Fleming in, in uh, Goldfinger, the Bond movie, right? I mean, you know, Auric Goldfinger would be moving stuff, all the gold around, you know, different right, points right. in time, you know, to maintain yeah. so It's a crazy plot, right? It's fantastic. Uh, so it, we see a repeat of, you know, some of those things going on here. But there, there's one aspect that I wanted to, you know, kind of get, uh, you know, kind of discuss with you too. With all these stable coins and NFTs, if, if we have a strong digital asset infrastructure around it, I can see a lot of very interesting uh, business models come out where you would have various ecosystems uh, that are, for example, hobby groups or restaurant chains or, um, you know, uh, subgroups, you know, people or communities committed to a certain cause, a certain vision or, or a business model and so on. Then they can adopt, uh, you know, their own coin, so to speak, but that's actually trading, but that's actually used as a security um so you know we are talking to one restaurant chain uh, that is is going to do something very innovative right and but we always say well, yes you can but let's make sure it's a compliant way to do that and there's a way to actually you know do many of those things so in other words if you have a community of people with a common cause or a common belief um, or a common hobby or something right the way they actually use the digital assets to trade and perform utilitarian functions within that ecosystem and the way all of it should be working very seamlessly that is a fascinating model so um i'm not sure if you have any uh, you know thoughts or you know some some exposure to some of those kinds of innovative ideas 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll avoid throwing the Dow example into the context to not overcomplicate things. But I do think that there is an ability, especially from a use case perspective, to mm -hmm. collectively bring a lot of individuals to the table in terms of decision making. And I, I also think about even just when we were just talking about in the stablecoin context, if you think about a company taking on the role and responsibility of custodying assets, something very simplistic like that, right? Mm -hmm. We have very overt regulation. It's very specific about what you need to provide. You have to have assets in the bank that are in comparison to the assets that you're custodying for customers and so on and so forth, like very real world considerations in that context. I think of, okay, well, imagine that same application, but instead of that centralized entity making decisions, it's more of a collective of centralized entities. And so think of like the restaurant chain example where everyone's able to, for whatever their contribution is to the actual network itself, is able to weigh in on, okay, what are the assets that are being held in this context that are actually creating stability to the, the coin? Or what are they going to bring to the table in terms of decision-making to try to allocate more rewards within their ecosystem to the consumer? Right. Because right. I think that there's right now a very, pretty substantial disconnect between regulation and say decentralized finance or like decentralized lending or pretty much any type of iteration that is just a series of smart contracts at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And there's, it's a really difficult play from a regulatory standpoint because those are so far disconnected from this ability to say, hey, we need to verify who's using this, like who are is your customer base? There's very simplistic regulatory requirements that aren't necessarily feasible for somebody who's launching, say, a DeFi protocol. And so that's really something that I see where, oh, we're gonna we're having this large disconnect where the regulators are almost standoffish to try to go after those companies that exist in the space because they're afraid that, oh, we might not actually be able to prove our argument because of the way the technology functions. And I think of a really good example is if I go in right and i lose funds or am subject to scam or fraud or something yeah. like that early comment you made in this discussion was oh i could act, find recourse right whether it's legal whether it's compliance i still have some entity to talk to well if i do that in the d5 protocol context where much more of the emphasis is on me as a user to make sure i'm implementing proper security measures for my information right. it's it's a double-edged sword for lack of a better term, right? Where we find ourselves in a position where we're not, not we're taking advantage of the benefits of the technology, but it puts more onus on the consumer. And as a result, regulators have a more difficult time of putting in those protections and those obstacles that would really check somebody from providing that. So, I, and, and I think getting back to kind of this larger question as well is super important because as we move down this road where we're going to start to get more, say legislative clarity, where say like eventually Congress, Congress will pass legislation that could ostensibly have a digital asset definition that could give us guidance on this type of thing. And maybe that digital asset definition is generated or curated through a interacting with all of the companies that are working in the space today. Okay. And if they do that, because our, our legislators do do that in the traditional industries for sure every day in our society. So there's not, it's not an unrealistic, unrealistic expectation that they could do it in this industry. I think, again, that reverts back to we just need to solve that educational hurdle faster and get to that point where there are more standards and practices in that context so that people feel more comfortable, too. I mean, revert that back to the investor discussion that we had earlier around, yeah. hey, I'm going to be standoffish to something that I'm much more concerned about the protection of my assets. I, I don't necessarily need the 
end all be all opportunity to buy Bitcoin at $30 and have it go to 50,000, right? Like I just want to protect what I have. And as a result, I'm going to be much more risk averse. Well, what iterations do we need to put in place to make sure that this technology creates benefit for those types of potential investors? And also what checks do we need to put on the people that are providing those services to those investors? Uh, of course, and, and, and the whole digital asset infrastructure using blockchain as the backdrop technology backdrop for all this makes it much, much more easy to create a very strong immutable audit trail and, you know, transactionally also make it non-reputable, right? I mean, you cannot say, no, I didn't do that or I didn't see that it's there. And to the extent that, you know, the, the uh, smart contracts that you can put in place to um, at least monitor if not at 100% in, in a very nice way of all these various clauses and, you know, revenue share arrangements and, you know, all these things, you know, just put it in a very way. And, and all of this can be, you know, audited step by step. You kind of go back the entire chain and you can get the entire audit history. I, I think that that has to <clears throat> be a very powerful, um, powerful um, perceived value of digital assets and right compared with you know anything else i mean look at decentralization you know we all talk about decentralization but we know in the bitcoin and, and ethereum networks there are a handful of mining com companies that own majority of them <laughs> nobody i mean neither you nor me or any you know john the street today can mine bitcoin and you know claim that you know they can actually control any of this stuff anymore right that's those right. days are totally gone now right right yeah they really are and in that that transformation over time has resulted in us having to take a different look and different approach to how the technology can be used for sure. I mean, I think that that's so important because it is there are still elements of window dressing going on in the industry because to that point that is potentially going to exist in other areas of or iterations that are coming out in the context of oh, we now have this new product or something along those lines. There's this benefit of this audit trail, but who's actually in control, right? And getting in without getting into public versus private blockchains and so on and so forth. Yeah. There are definitely very real world use cases that can help solve for those issues. And I want to go back to the audit trail example that you just mentioned, because it's super important is it really does create this transparency check on where assets are coming from. Because I actually bring that up a lot when people bring up the potential fraudulent use of cryptocurrency is oh well i mean how much easier is it to track say bitcoin in the context of fraudulent use comparatively to me being able to like pack a bunch of cash in a suitcase and transport it somewhere like the crypto context is much i wouldn't say easier but it's much more efficient in terms of finding out who's actually conducting these transactions so that that really does create more transparency and i think even going back to the larger context of consumer protection especially in the say the traditional securities industry just think of the emphasis that we can advocate to regulators of saying, hey, this isn't here to navigate around what you guys yeah. create and what gives you authority. It's mm -hmm. here to make it stronger. It's here to make it more efficient. And it's mm -hmm. here to create more consumer protection, because if there is that audit trail, then we're going to be able to go much farther back than, say, we were able to go back in information that occurred in many of the traditional elements of fraud and scams that we've seen in the traditional financial context. Yeah. It's, um, you know, when you look at all the different participants in this space, you have the entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. you have the investors, you have the broker dealers, 
you have the secondary market operators and you have the regulators and you have the custody uh, you know pro providers and so on right for each of these people i think there are two key things um, that is very important for them to understand number one is that in this whole digital assets and security space it is a very different market compared to you know the open public chain cryptocurrency market you know at the same time, it is also a little bit different from the traditional securities. It, it, it mimics that, but there is a lot of uh, fluidity and innovation that is actually possible in the space. So from that perspective, right, I mean, there are two um, key types of capabilities that I would, you know, look at. And we always talk about this, you know, with, you know, many of our partners and, you know, people like you and everybody else. You know, one is the technology should be an enabler. For all this right i mean it cannot be the leader of that it's a it's an ena fast enabler and the technology is there, is there just to say oh wait a minute we can actually make this auditable oh smart contracts yes we can make them ai driven so on right but at the end of the day you know you have to lead with you know being compliant regulatorily and at the end of them and i i tell this to people all the time i'll say look you know I know some of you hate regulation. Some of this can be like really crazy regulation. I get it, okay? But the intent, the spirit of regulation, you've got to maintain that. The spirit of regulation is protection, right? And that's what you would want. And so how? So the, the regulation needs to do that. The technology needs to support that. And the technology cannot, you know, disintermediate the risk. You can disintermediate the intermediaries, but you cannot take out the risk totally. It has to go somewhere. Somehow it has to be handled somehow, right? Right, right. And, so, and, exactly. and I think, yeah, and I think, Andrew, I think it's a, it's a constant education, right? I mean, this is, uh, you know, we, I mean, and, and you, and, you know, many of the, you know, responsible people in this ecosystem, you know, we kind of see ourselves as educators. You know, we're kind of mm -hmm. telling all these different participants, what's in it for you? as right. a broker dealer, as an investor, as a entrepreneur, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, and the more we can spread this message and educate people, I think uh, the entire ecosystem is going to benefit uh, from totally, right? Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And also just having seen certain iterations early on in the industry that haven't really worked out as they were intended. I think that's the other thing, too, is that we're going to have we'll have more clarity over time. I mean, understandably the the terra luna situation like thinking about okay they're they're stepping out of their bounds into a, a completely open-ended territory and not taking proper precautions or attempting something and it not working comparatively the other end of the spectrum is having overt regulation like the bit license in new york that was created yeah. too early on in the context mm -hmm. of some of the companies that were operating in that industry and then everything in between i think that we'll start to get at least a little bit closer from a oh what is the proper standards and practices that can be implemented to make sure that going back to what you're saying everyone's deriving that benefit oh absolutely and you know I'm, I'm really looking forward to this very rich and dynamic mix between what technology can enable from one perspective right the innovations and stuff you know you've got this whole data you've got this uh, artificial intelligence the smart contracts the distributed systems technologies and so on i mean stuff you know stuff that you know we tech guys we just drool over right you know zero knowledge proofs and so on yep. and on the on, on the other side you know i think many of the people in uh, this space uh, the newcomers in this space the people who come from the public chains i don't think they give enough credit to the amount of thought and innovation that's been gone into the traditional, um, you know, capital markets, you know, in the terms of things like such as you know the derivatives, the options, the uh, 
you know, the futures markets, the forward contracts and stuff like that. There's a lot of thought put into standardizing many of those things that people really don't appreciate as much. So, you know, I think they have to borrow the lessons from both sides and, and both those parties need to really come together in, in this space, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that that's increasing over time, too, in terms of the communication that's been ongoing. And going back to my earlier comment about the kind of the uptick in the last two years, I mean, mm -hmm. we saw more and more of companies within the traditional financial industry starting to take a, a hard look at the technology, a hard look at the industry. I mean, I don't know if anyone's seen Morgan Stanley's new website, but it's it's very crypto focused. <laughs> and you, you think of like these larger institutional traditional companies that are That's transitioning right. in, in that direction. It's like those are byproducts of not rash decisions that they're just like, oh, we need to dive in and get in immediately. It's like, no, they're yeah. calculated. There's a lot of thought that goes behind that from a consideration perspective. Consulting regulators, the amount of people that I believe do not and just don't, aren't even aware that they have the opportunity to do that in this industry is just astronomically high. And I really hope that that starts to decline because there are regulators in this country for a reason. And we need to consult them because we need to see what it is that they're doing and what they're thinking about. Because you think about the traditional financial industry, that's all it is. It's an outgrowth of clarity. And then obviously yes. companies operating within that clarity. And so the faster we get to that point, the more consumers will be protected or the more ad advantage opportunities there will be out there for investors and so on and so forth. I, I see that we are, I feel that we are in a space right now where if you look at back at the dot-com era, right, where all these really crazy ideas about, you know, internet and what happens, you know, and, and many of those kind of fell by the wayside. And when the dust settled, all the responsible, thoughtful people were left standing and they went on to build like really, really large and very, very nice uh, businesses out there. And I kind of see this happening right now in the same way. And I think the the whole conversation on digital assets um, has and should continue to take on a much more responsible uh, narrative, right? So, uh, Andrew, I mean, this has been a wonderful conversation with you. Um, I'm looking forward to a lot more uh, that we and others can discuss, uh, you know, because, you know, if we don't do it, right, I mean, who else is going to do it? I mean, I think we have right. to, you know, push that narrative forward. So uh, any uh, concluding uh, thoughts? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. No, I and obviously always appreciate Quokonex uh, and everyone at the, at the core team there, which has been fantastic. And I've had a great relationship with them. But it, it is so important from an educational standpoint. I think that you, all of that consideration that we were just referencing, trying to get it over the line to a point of larger adoption. I mean, it, it's it's really all about trying to navigate through kind of that muddy water that you were just referencing in the dot com bubble example, where it's really too many iterations of something that people are trying to capitalize on and it just can't work in that breadth of expansion and so the more and more that we have these discussions and conversations and and work with all the different stakeholders that i wanted to take a notepad and write down all the ones you listed on your hand because it was great but i think that that's such a good example of hey there's a lot of participants in this industry and ecosystem and everyone has to come together to really have those discussions and start to progress it forward absolutely Andrew, thank you so much. And, you know, we will continue to educate our, our main goal, of course, you know, as a team, you know, you and, you know, all of this ecosystem included, uh, Core Connex, you know, our goal is to continue to, you know, educate and bring out the value of all this and warn people of all the, you know, tar pits and what's the right thing to do. 
you know, as an ecosystem. So thank you so much. And thanks everyone for coming by and uh, giving us the gift of your precious time um, today. Uh, please uh, continue to follow us on LinkedIn and Spotify and, you know, read our blogs and, you know, follow Andrew and follow all of us and uh, we will, we will make uh, good things happen. Thank you once again. Thanks, Dr. Ren. Have a good one. Bye for now.